You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we're going to try something a little different today. And if it works, it's something that we will do from time to time in the future. I brought together a few of my friends and colleagues to discuss an intelligence topic from a historical perspective. Essentially, this is something we would do anyway when we're together at dinner or happy hour, and we just want to give you, the listener, a chance to eavesdrop on our conversation. So today I'm joined by Dr. Alexis Albion, who was the first historian here at the Spy Museum when we opened in 2002. She has a bachelor's from Princeton University and an MA and PhD from Harvard in international history. Alexis also spent five years working at the World Bank Group, first in the office of the president, and then with the Global Foundations Program, and two years in U.S. State Department, where she served as a strategist in the Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism. Alexis served on the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, which is more popularly known as the 9-11 Commission, where she was lead investigator on the CIA's activities before the 9-11 attacks, as well as a key drafter of the Commission's final report. She continued to work on implementation of the Commission's recommendations as Director for Policy for the 9-11 Public Discourse Project, working with the executive branch and Congress to support the passage of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. She is now back at the Spy Museum, working as a lead curator for our new museum scheduled to open at some point soon. She tried to get away, but we pulled her back in. Welcome, Alexis. Thanks, Vince. It's good to be here. We also have Thomas Bogart, who is a senior historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History, where he is writing an official history of U.S. intelligence operations in early Cold War Europe. Before he joined the Center of Military History, Dr. Bogart was a visiting fellow at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and served as a second historian at the International Spy Museum for six years. He has lectured and published widely on the history of intelligence and on contemporary intelligence issues. His latest book is The Zimmerman Telegram, Intelligence, Diplomacy, and the American Entry into World War I. Dr. Bogart earned his Ph.D. in modern European history from the University of Oxford in England. Welcome, Thomas. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you. Then there is Dr. Mark Stout who was my immediate predecessor here at the Spy Museum, our third historian. He previously worked for 21 years in the national security community, including 13 years as an intelligence analyst for the State Department and then CIA. He now is director of the master's degree program in global security studies and also director of the graduate certificate in intelligence, both at Johns Hopkins University's Krieger School of Arts and Sciences, advanced academic programs in Washington, D.C. 
He is presently co-editing a two-volume set on intelligence leaders around the world and writing a book about American intelligence during World War I. He earned his PhD from Leeds University in the UK. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. And then there's me, Vince Houghton, who is a current historian and curator at the International Spy Museum. I'm number four. I have a PhD in diplomatic and military history from the University of Maryland, where my research centered on US scientific and technological intelligence, specifically nuclear intelligence, in the Second World War and early Cold War. My master's also from the University of Maryland, focused on the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. I've taught extensively in the middle school, high school, and university level, most recently at the University of Maryland, where I taught courses on the history of US intelligence, US diplomatic history, the Cold War, and randomly, the history of science. So that's our lineup. And our topic today will be, who is your favorite spy? So there are some ground rules. We're not going to go by the official definition of spy, but we'll be including everyone associated with intelligence in some way, which could include case officers, military intelligence personnel, bureaucrats or dictators, and yes, even analysts. So Alexis, why don't you kick us off? Great. Thank you very much, Vince. Uh, today I wanted to talk about somebody who may well have been Britain's most damaging spy. Um, this is somebody who uh, worked uh, for the Soviet Union, passing secrets to the Soviet Union for, for decades. Um, somebody whose KGB handlers uh, considered them uh, to be very, very highly valued, very important to them. And somebody whose loyalty to the Soviet Union, to the ideology of the Soviet Union, um, never flagged for, for their entire life, actually. And now you might think that this would be Kim Philby, probably the, the best known of Britain's spies, but it's not. In fact, this is somebody who may have been even more damaging than Kim Philby, and someone whose name is, is not as widely known, and it's Melita Norwood. Um, she called herself Letty, Letty Norwood, and um, she spied for the Soviet Union for over 30 years and was probably the, the longest serving Soviet agent in British history, as far as we know. So why don't we know her name? Why isn't she better, better known? Why aren't there many, many more books written about her? And the reason is, uh, is because she really kept herself very quiet, very much on the lowdown. And, uh, and we didn't actually find out about her. When I say we, I mean the public in general. And maybe quite likely most of British intelligence as well, until she was in her 80s. Now that happened in uh, 1999 when the London Times published a front page article um, which was, uh, had an excerpt uh, actually from uh, a book that had just been published by uh, British intelligence historian Christopher Andrew uh, with Vasily Mitrokin, who had defected from the Soviet Union a few years previously. He had been uh, an archivist with the KGB and had taken with him uh, uh, thousands and thousands of documents from the KGB archives. Actually, he hadn't taken them with them. They were um, smuggled out of the Soviet Union afterwards, and that's a whole story uh, in and of itself. Well. Um, Christopher Andrew uh, collaborated with him, and they published this book called The Matrokin Archive. And one of the revelations that came out of the book was about Letty. <laughs> Her code name, one of the code names that she was given, 
um, was Hola, I guess, H-O-L-A, I'll say Hola. And Hola was mentioned uh, in quite a lot of these um, documents that were um, talked about in, the, in this book. Um, and she appears, uh, this name appears again and again as being a very important spy for the Soviets, somebody who had handed, who was continuously handing over documents about the uh, British nuclear program. And um, after a little bit of investigation, it was pretty clear that this was Melita Norwood, who at that time was in her 80s. <laughs> she was widowed. She's living in a suburb in London. As you can, might imagine, this was quite a story. Um, hordes of press turned up at the, at the doorway of her cottage, trampling her roses, which she cultivated, um, and, uh, and knocked on the door. Um, and she, quite composed, came out and said, yes, I was a spy. <laughs> um, and she made one public statement to the press. And I'll read it for you because it's quite interesting. She said, I do not consider myself a spy. In general, I do not agree with spying against one's country. But I did what I did not to make money, but to help prevent the defeat of a new system which had, at great cost, given ordinary people food and fares which they could afford, good education and health service. I wanted Russia to be on an equal footing with the West. Now, that tells you pretty much most of what we really know about her motivations, what she did. Um, now, I'll give a few more details about what she actually did, and it's still a little bit fuzzy. Um, she worked for an organization called the British Non-Ferrous Metals Research Association, which, again, you might not have heard of, but which was a research organization which was, uh, did substantially the research on, on metals, on metallurgy, um, that fed into a secret British program during the war, World War II, um, called the Tube Allies Pro Alloys, Alloys Project, um, <coughs> which is, its job was basically to develop the British nuclear bomb. Um, her, this organization, the, we'll call it the BNF, as it was known, um, did a lot of the research on uranium, which of course was key for developing the atomic bomb, and uh, all, that, all those research papers passed over the desk of the director of the BNF, and who was his secretary? Letty Norwood. And uh, apparently what she did was make copies, um, maybe with a carbon copy. When she was typing something, she might make copies of things. Um, and then uh, took them home with her or had an arrangement where she would meet with her KGB contact and, and hand them over. No tradecraft particularly was involved, no gadgets, uh, nothing. She just handed them over. Um, and um, we can talk a bit later about, about the impact that those had, how important it was. But one of the interesting things that actually came out quite recently, I think in the last five years, um, once these, uh, uh, this Matrokin archive, which is now uh, can be accessed by the public in Cambridge University, um, once that was actually came out and, and the public could go in and look at those papers, one of the extra very interesting bits of information that came out of some research there was that um, the KGB apparently held Letty um, in much, much higher uh, acclaim or, or thought she was much more important than any of the Cambridge Five, in fact. 
and, and there was a point um, right after World War II where uh, Russian resources were quite low. Uh, they didn't quite have enough, mon uh, enough people, actually, um, uh, enough Soviet agents in Britain to support all of the spies that they had there. And they had to decide to cut down on some of their spies. And they had to make some hard choices. And actually, uh, they decided to keep Letty over Kim Philby. So um, certainly they thought she was very valuable. Um, and there's one other thing I want to say, because you asked about our favorite spy, and I was trying to think what that was. Um, I think one of the things that's so interesting about Letty Norwood was how, um, well, certainly, I guess, how, how long she, she worked for. And again, how sort of unspectacular she seems to have been. And I found a wonderful quote, which I'd, I'd, like, to, uh, I'd like to tell you about. Um, when she was asked about what it was like being a spy and whether she felt she was very anxious and under a lot of pressure, handing over these secrets, she said, um, it never seemed like pressure when I was gathering information. It wasn't a major part of my life. What with the washing, the shopping, and the kids, I had other things to worry about. And, um, and I think it's important to, uh, to put that point. I think, I think most women would understand that, really. I mean, you're always juggling a lot of things. There's work, there's the kids, there's the shopping, there's the laundry to do. And so in many ways, despite the fact that I, I can't really identify with what Letty did, I think we can all identify with that part of her life, having to really just, you know, juggle a whole bunch of things. So, um, well, she's the anti-James Bond. I mean, imagine. Well, not just the anti-James Bond. <laughs> doing laundry, I, I right? think she's the anti-many things. Yeah. And and again, you know, many books have been written about the Cambridge Five, about Kim Philby, um, and uh, and not that many books have been written about uh, about Letty Norwood. We don't know actually that much about her. She she didn't talk to many people. In fact, she only talked to one person who's written a biography of hers, um, which is. Um, you know, covers doesn't even cover that much, so we don't really have a lot of records about her. But I, I, I don't, I don't, I have no idea. But I'm trying to channel Letty Norwood. I don't think she thought what she did was particularly remarkable at all. As I said, I mean, that, that's I, I gave you that quote, and I think it was just one thing that she did in a busy day. You know, of trying to handle all those other things we're trying to handle work and family and the cooking and so on. One of the things I think is interesting about this case is that it just utterly subverts the stereotype which is largely based in popular culture of the female spy. Right? Who's some sort of, I don't know, Anna Chapman or Bond girl kind of thing. I mean, yes. she ain't that. No, there's yeah, nothing but spy. the Marty Hart. Yes, so she was Mata I mean, Hari, of right? course, when, when, <coughs> when uh, the story came out, this is in 1999, I mean, there's wonderful headlines right in the British newspapers um I wrote some of them down, yeah. Suburban super spy, you know, the spy who came in from the co-op. <laughs> <laughs> the spy behind the privet hedge. Or, you know, my favorite, a lovely old lady who made jam. I mean, <laughs> and from all accounts, that's what Letty was. All her neighbors were incredibly surprised. She was a lovely lady who made homemade jam and delivered. Yes, yes, okay, she did drink her tea, out of a Che Guevara mug. <laughs> and yes, yeah, she, she did deliver the communist newspaper every day to her neighbors, whether they wanted it or not. But other than that, she was just a perfectly normal, lovely lady. I take it she was never prosecuted? Uh. Well, that's, of course, an interesting story. Um, 
Uh, and there's a lot, there's more to say about, uh, well, one of the, the sub-stories here was, well, what did British intelligence know and when? Um, and uh, apparently, uh, now, Letty never made any particular secret, though she didn't go about talking about it a lot, uh, of her sympathies, which were very much with the Communist Party. She was a member of the Communist Party. She was her, uh, the daughter of a Soviet, uh, sorry, Russian emigres who were very, very active in the emigre circles and had you know, very strong leftist socialist views, as she did she. And, and that was, she held those her entire life. And so the question was, you know, well, how could you, somebody who had been a member of the Communist Party, um, been allowed, not have been vetted? Well, she was vetted, actually, for this job which she has as a secretary, and um, and uh, they they knew about her sympathies, but obviously that didn't um, sort of cause enough anxiety not to allow her to have access to the documents. Now, some of this has to be understood some in in context, but. A lot of the same sort of questions that you might ask about Philby and his compatriots could be asked about, say, that seems to be about Letty as recurring well. recurring theme in British intelligence. Right. I, I have to confess, when, I, uh, when you told us that you were going to talk about her, I didn't know much about her, um, and I looked it up, and I, and I did see that she was suspected, there were some suspicions about her from British intelligence that she... That she was doing some of that, what you just elaborated well, that she on. She wasn't really. Uh, yeah. She might not be the most reliable person. And I to was have thinking, well, you know, you mentioned the Cambridge worked. Five several mm -hmm. times, and then we'll talk about my favorite spy. That seems to be a recurrent theme. There is suspicion, but for one reason or another, it's not being followed up. And then, lo and behold, these people actually are spies. Well, one of the interesting things is apparently, and again, there's not a lot of information on this, but they, the British intelligence or. Parliament, what is it, the Parliamentary Office on National Security or something like that, did do a sort of uh, inquiry, internal inquiry, after the Matrokin Arcade came out and all this information came out, into um, uh, Norwood and, and some, others, some other information that come out in the archives. And, and one of the things we get from that was, apparently, British intelligence actually uh, did have their finger on her in 1965. Um, but decided <laughs> not to expose her because it might actually expose others who they are also uh, were watching, and they didn't want to reveal what they already knew and their methods and so on. Uh, so there's an interesting question there. Um, Norwood did have the code name Tina, I believe, in the Venona uh, 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 decrypts as well, which was the American decryption project um, and now they so her that there was somebody and it was a woman who was handing over these secrets of, of this kind and that and the code name even was known but who exactly that was I think took a while to work out and apparently by the mid 60s they did know it was Melita Norwood I, we don't have a lot of information on that but this is something that is coming out and once again there was that question in the 1990s as to whether to investigate Norwood. There's some mix-up here um, uh, between British Secret Service and actually the criminal authorities. Secret Service sort of by themselves decided, no, we won't go after Norwood. She's too old. It's too far in the past. Um, um, but didn't really convey that information <laughs> to the criminal authorities. And so by the time... This became a big story in the press and in the public, and there were calls should we prosecute Melita Norwood. It was a bit late to do that, and by that time the woman was 
1983, I believe, and the decision was made not to prosecute her. One thing I found really funny about this was that she was ordered, uh, she was given the order of the red banner of Soviet labor. She was. And she was receiving a pension living outside uh, of London well, okay. by the Soviet she, intelligence. She, she, was, she was granted the order of the uh, red, red banner. banner yeah. Which, and actually after she retired, um, both from the, this, the BNF, uh, from her job, as well as from being a Soviet agent, she basically, the, the two happened together in the early 1970s. She actually made a trip to the Soviet Union and went to Moscow and received the red banner officially. It had been granted to her years ago, at which time she was also um, uh, given a pension. I believe it was 20 pounds a month um, for her work. And my understanding is that she turned it down, not, not at that time, but a little while later she turned it down and she said she didn't need it. It would be interesting to see if the British government taxed her spy pension from the Soviet <laughs> government. 20 pounds a month, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that controversial when it came out in Britain at the time um, because apparently she was not prosecuted, but how did her neighbors and you know, friends and family react to that? I, I'm not, definitely, it was, yeah, there was some controversy whether she should be prosecuted or not, clearly, you know. Um, to not do so would be uh, to set a precedent, and the you know, thing would be she was, she was clearly a traitor. She had admitted it. All the evidence was there. But I think there was some sympathy. This was after the Cold War had ended. The woman was in her 80s. She died in 2005. That would be six years after she was outed in the press. Um, and I think the decision was just made to leave her alone. Um, it was a huge surprise for her neighbors, had no clue. Her own daughter did not know about it. Um, but uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I think there was also some, some sympathy that an eight-year-old woman probably um, wasn't a good idea to be putting her up on trial and sending her to the clink. Fascinating cool. case. Thank you, Alexis. So to Thomas, you're next, who you got? Well, it's a case that in some ways is similar and in some, some ways is very different. Uh, also a British citizen, uh, a man, Cold War spy, his name is George Blake. He's a little better known, but not quite as well known as the Cambridge Five. So George Blake's story is interesting. He's an interesting guy. Um, the story has many twists and turns um, and uh, against a Cold War spy server, but apparently he's still alive. So who was Blake? Blake was born um, in Egypt before World War II. His mother was Protestant Dutch and his father was uh, uh, a Jew from Egypt, so a very cosmopolitan background. And he grew up between Egypt and Netherlands. When World War II broke out, he was in the Netherlands. Um, the Germans invaded, he became very much involved in resistance work. Um, he was almost caught uh, by the Germans, but he was able to flee to Britain. He had family there in 1944. And thence his, uh, his path into British intelligence, which is not surprising. As someone who's done resistance work, uh, he knew languages, he had experience, he was recruited by MI6. Um, he was a very complex character. I think, I think he suffered from the fact that he never really fully fitted into Britain. He still retained a strong accent. He was Jewish. He tried at some point, or he wanted to marry one of the secretaries in MI6. The family uh, um, said no because they didn't want, apparently, a Jew in their family. Um, and he did have pro-leftist sympathies, like many people at the time. That wasn't unusual. But in the case of Blake, it went further. Um, in the late 1940s, then, he was posted, interestingly, to Korea, uh, Seoul. So he was there when uh, the North Koreans invaded in 1950. And he was interned along with the uh, entire British embassy. 
And now here's the catch. He at some point told the North Koreans um, that he would be interested in speaking to the KGB, uh, the Soviet intelligence service. They interviewed him, and he said, yes, indeed, you know, he was very much uh, um, pro-communist, and he would like to work with them. He later explained that the things he saw in Korea, especially the bombing by American planes of Korean civilians, convinced him to do that. But be that as it may, he volunteered um, after the war. Um, of course, he stayed in British intelligence. Uh, from the out- outside, it looked like you know, he hadn't changed. He came back to Britain. He was feted as a hero. Um, but in reality, he be- became a double agent. He started to spy for the KGB, and he did that for nine years. Uh, he was very, very damaging. He gave the Russians a uh, number of names of uh, people who worked um, uh, uh, for the British. Um, and he also betrayed a major spy operation in Berlin. Uh, the CIA and MI6 had dug a tunnel into the eastern sector of Berlin, tapped into Soviet communications there. Blake gave that away. As a result of that, uh, the operation was shut down. Um, in the late 50s, he is... Uh, apprehended by the British. Uh, His name was revealed by another defector, typical spy versus spy story. Uh, He is uh, sentenced to multiple years in prison. But here's another twist that he doesn't stay in prison. Uh, He escapes. Um, There's still some mystery how he has helpers. He always claimed these were just people he had met in prison and uh, they were sympathizers, and that may well be true. There's another version to the story that says that maybe the KGB helped him. He then eventually makes it to the Soviet Union. And uh, here's another twist. There's a lot of defectors, or quite a few defectors, who made it to the Soviet Union. None of them fared very well. If you look at Kim Philby, uh, Donald McLean, they just couldn't bear life. Being a communist was all very well, but then actually living the reality uh, wasn't meant for these people. Very different in Blake's uh, case. He remarried a Russian woman. He had a son. Apparently, he adapted very well. Uh, he, uh, from all we know, he is uh, still alive. Uh, he must be in his 90s now. He received a uh, medal from uh, Mr. Putin, I think six or seven years ago, and uh, he also wrote his memoirs, uh, No Other Choice, uh, which I enjoyed very much. Like any memoir, and especially spy memoirs, of course, you have to read those with caution. Um, but it does tell you a lot about the man, and you can't help, even if you disagree with uh, you know his goals and 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 you know his sympathies, uh, he does seem very humane. I mean, I think he was very much motivated by um, you know his personal experience and you know his resistance to the Nazis and by creating a better world. I mean, I personally would say, of course, he was misguided, um, but you can't help have a certain admiration for the guy. And uh, yeah, again, I think he lives in a Russian subsidized um, apartment. Uh, you know, has a grown-up son and. Uh, I think he says he closes his memoirs sort of with a saying, you know, after all, yeah, it was all worth it, and I led a good life. Uh, so that is George Blake, uh, interesting character and uh, fascinating spy story, I find. One of the interesting things mm-hmm. I find about Blake is the idea of the Berlin Tunnel went on for years, and the Soviets knew about it the entire time because of Blake, but they had to let it go and actually collect a lot of pretty damaging information about the Soviets and East Germans because to discover it too early would have been to burn Blake, and Blake was considered such an important asset for them that they had to essentially give up on this signals intelligence windfall for the United States and the West in order to keep Blake protected. Absolutely. I mean, again, it's an interesting question. You know, of course, there are other people who say that the Soviets, um, uh, 
use the tunnel to feed disinformation to us. That's probably not true, but yes, I mean that that does tell you how how important they considered um, Blake and that they, they let this operation run in order to protect them. So I think the consensus is now that um, indeed the information that uh, we got through the Berlin Tunnel was was genuine, and the Russians simply could not stop it early because they want to protect Blake because he was a very important spy and he did give them. Um, a lot of um, um, interesting, good information. And again, when he was caught, it wasn't because of Berlin Tunnel operation. It was because there was a defector, I think, mm -hmm. from Poland who in turn knew about Blake um, and then betrayed him. Was he some sort of Manchurian candidate? I mean, you know, brain, <laughs> brainwashed while in capture? I am so happy you bring this up. Yes, I've looked we a little not, bit. We did not rehearse this. No, no, we did not. But um, I wanted to bring it up in my talk, but I'm glad you did. Um, I mean, the Korean War is, is, is very interesting also from an intelligence perspective. The whole idea about brainwashing, um, you know, does come up during the, the Korean War. And um, apparently um, this does gain traction because there were some, not many, but there were a few American soldiers who were captured by the North Koreans and then did propaganda broadcasts. And the sentiments in the United States was this can't be. No normal person, American boy, uh, would do this kind of thing unless he was brainwashed. So hence the idea of being brainwashed. From people who've looked into brainwashing and say it doesn't really work. There is no uh, such thing. There is no <laughs> such thing. The only person who sort of was turned was Blake, but of course he wasn't brainwashed. This was the end of a, a lengthy process. Um, you know, I think he was totally committed to what he did. So they um, were pushing against an open door with him ideologically. Excuse me? They were pushing against an open door with well, him ideologically. He remember, he volunteered. Yeah. Not even that. Um, they okay. interned the yeah. British, uh, the British uh, embassy's uh, personnel, and then he said to his captors, listen, I would like to speak to the KGB. It's possible he's probably looking for an opportunity to do it the whole time, and this gave him a perfect chance. Absolutely. To, Again, he, mm -hmm. you know, he later said in his memoirs, you know, what pushed him over the edge was the uh, the bombing of, of uh, Korean civilians by Americans. How credible that is. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the, the Soviets, or the North Koreans, initiated the invasion. But uh, I think there's no doubt that this was the end point of a long, you know, psychological development that uh, he went through. The whole escape from Wormwood Scrubs prison is so extraordinary. It is. It's a great story. It, it's an incredible story. And it was at the time, too, as I seem yes. to remember. Um, and... and and it's still sort of shrouded in mystery as to how he managed to do that. And I just, you know, it's hard not to make um, uh, comparisons with the other defectors, again, the Cambridge Five, Philby, and there's still a certain amount of controversy over Philby's defection and whether he was allowed to defect, um, right? They Absolutely, sort of didn't yes. stop it. A and I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about that with Blake and his defection. I mean... Uh, how, how did that happen? How could that happen? Again, you know, up to a point we have to speculate. Yeah. I read his memoirs, and yes, you have to read him with caution. I think in this case, I actually believe him. Uh, the way he describes it, he had two or three friends, um, some of them I think he actually met in prison, who sympathized with him. Um, they were not in any way connected to the Soviets. They were just sympathizers. And uh, I suppose they wanted to break out themselves. And, and, you know, they set a plan in motion. They had someone on the outside. But, again, apparently not someone he writes, and I think he's right, who is connected to the Soviets. Once he's out, he goes into hiding and eventually makes his way to the Soviet Union. Of course, once he's there, he's, he's, he's safe. Um, there were always these allegations that the KGB in some way was involved. I mean, I personally doubt that. I don't think they would go... Well, I think he just—he was just lucky. He met the right people. He was a smart guy. 
um, um, you know, if you look at prison escapes in Britain at the time, there are probably others. Um, I think, you know, prison breaks happen. He happened to meet the right people, and then he made his way to the Soviet Union. Yeah, and, and I certainly wouldn't swear to this, but I can't immediately call to mind another case of the KGB springing anyone out of prison, or at least in the first world. I, I, I stand ready to be corrected on that, but, but that suggests, right. again, that maybe this really was what yes. he claimed it was. I mean, you, you, I mean, you could say they were in the early Cold War, there were KGB and then also Bulgarian intelligence operations in the West as far as they were all assassination operations, so this is a different thing. and. Uh, that is probably easier to do yeah. uh, than manage a prison break. And again, we should be careful not to overestimate um, you know, the, the capabilities of these services. Um, exfiltrating someone is one thing, but to spring them from prison is, is pretty hard to do. And again, if it fails, you know, that would have been a major scandal. So I don't think they um, were involved. But of course, they were very happy to have him. Great. Well, thank you, Thomas. Mark, you are next. Uh, well, I, I'd like to just very briefly mention my least favorite spy before I talk about my favorite. Uh, <laughs> That's the next time we're talking. <laughs> uh, Kendall Myers, a former State Department officer uh, who was arrested in 2009 for spying for the Cubans. I have special distaste for him because when I worked for the State Department, I knew him, and he used to come by my office and chat me up every once in a while, and I'm quite confident that a good bit of what I told him ended up in Havana. So I feel personally betrayed, and I don't intend to mention him again in this podcast series. Um, no, but seriously, um, so my favorite spy is technically not a spy. He's an intelligence officer, uh, unlike the, the, the first two we've just uh, spoken about. Well, yours was an intelligence officer and a spy, I guess, uh, Thomas, but um, is uh, Jean Valentin, Valentin Grombach. Uh, who uh, was born in New Orleans in 1901. Uh, he was, uh, by virtue of being born in the United States, who's an American citizen, but he was also a French citizen because his father was a member of the French Consular Service. Um, after uh, he grew up in New Orleans, uh, did a stint as a teenager as a bouncer in a brothel, and then decided that uh, he would go to West Point, uh, which involved giving up his French citizenship, and he became John Valentine Grombach. Uh, he was supposed to be in the uh, West Point class of 1923, got uh, thrown out of West Point the night before graduation for having too many demerits. He literally spent the next, after the arithmetic, 44 years getting this rectified. In 1967, he finally, he finally got his diploma uh, from West Point. Um, and uh, really had very little connection with intelligence um, uh, for the next uh, 20 years or so. Instead, uh, he served briefly in the, uh, in the National Guard. And then he went to New York City, uh, where he made his uh, living in radio production, uh, was involved in producing a lot of the big names from that era that you'd probably recognize if you'd been alive in the 20s and the 30s, um, and uh, was also a fixture on the boxing scene. Uh, he was a very accomplished amateur boxer. He was also a very accomplished amateur fencer. Um, and he wrote in the late 1930s, published in, I think, 1941, a rule book for touch football. Okay, so World War II comes along. He's recalled to active duty and somehow finagles, um, he was originally the morale officer in the 27th division on the basis of having written the book about football, uh, but he gets reassigned to the uh, War Department General Staff, the Military Intelligence Division, and put in charge of establishing an espionage organization, a clandestine collection organization, because the head of War Department Intelligence really, really loathes William Donovan and the OSS, um, and uh, wants to have a rival organization. He puts Grombach in charge of this. Grombach is basically a born conspirator, and, and he also thinks that uh, Donovan and the whole concept of the OSS 
uh, is just horrid. Uh, probably there's a lot of sort of class-based stuff going on here. Um, and Grombach establishes something which goes through a variety of names, uh, but ultimately by the end of World War II, it, it, it comes to have the nickname which, which endures of the pond, as in the small body of water. Why the pond, I have absolutely no idea. Um, but this is uh, an organization that primarily uses um, uh, real State Department foreign service officers and also foreign businessmen, journalists, this sort of thing, people with uh, no apparent connection with the U.S. government uh, as case officers overseas. And they operate uh, primarily in Europe, including in occupied Europe, uh, throughout World War II. And then, and this is where things start to get weird, and World War II comes along. Grombach's organization has been very controversial because he's an extreme hard right winger, basically unable to get along with anybody on the War Department staff. So he, he spends World War II, you know, quietly feuding with the OSS. In fact, he keeps files on OSS officers, uh, just like he does on German, uh, German officers. Um, uh, end of World War II comes along, and the War Department says... Um, uh, yeah, we don't really need you as part of the general staff anymore. Uh, maybe we'll retain a little residual capability. Uh, so he says, fine, and he reorganizes his group as a private company um, based out of, uh, uh, of New York City, the Universal, Universal Services Corporation. How's that for a cover name? Um, and in 1947, they finally cut him loose, say, you're not producing much of use to us, and re frankly, we don't like you. Uh, and um, he manages to then, and, and, and also going on in 1947, we've had the National Security Act of, of 1947, the CIA has been created, and uh, the way the law was written at that time, basically the CIA was supposed to take over all foreign espionage. Uh, and so Grombach manages to finagle his way um, over to the State Department, and the State Department, which apparently uh, doesn't really like this idea of the CIA owning all of espionage, decides to pick up his contract, and the State Department contracts with his private company to do espionage for them on, this, on the sly without letting CIA know. Uh, and as that's going on along, by the way, uh, just to show that he keeps his hand in all sorts of other endeavors, he discovers a, an up-and-coming young boxer from France named Laurent Dautoy, uh, who's interesting because he fights a legendary bout against Jake LaMotta, which actually is featured in the movie Raging Bull. In fact, I'm told that some, uh, some you know, a cameo character who has one line in the movie is meant to be Grombach himself. Uh, 1951, uh, the CIA picks up uh, Grombach's uh, contract when they find out about it um, and uh, continue uh, 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 using him and his company for another uh, five years. By this time, he's actually developed a worldwide intelligence organization. They are operating in Vietnam. They're operating in India. Uh, they're operating in uh, South America, in North Africa, uh, in Europe, East and West. In fact, um, operations in Hungary are one of their specialties. Um, but Grombach is basically completely unable to get along with anybody in the CIA. Uh, he doesn't like Alan Dulles, uh, who's the head of the operational side of CIA and then becomes CIA director. And the CIA also doesn't like this notion of an organization that is a private company that's outside of government channels. You know, he thinks that's the strength of this, uh, of this organization, that they are a, a, a check, a sort of a second opinion on CIA espionage. CIA looks at them as uncontrolled. We're not quite sure what they're doing. And there's this long-running battle of, you know, we'd like you to tell us who your sources are, and him saying, absolutely no way, no how, because that would undercut the entire concept of what I'm trying to do, right? And by the way, you, the CIA, you're incompetent, and you're probably insecure and penetrated, and even those of you who aren't spies for the Soviets are pinkos, and I just don't like you. Um, and this finally comes to a head 
uh, in 53 and 54 uh, when Grombach, whose political sympathies are very hardcore right-wing, sort of of the Joseph McCarthy persuasion, um, gets uh, the CIA becomes concerned that he's actually um, actually uh, making common cause with McCarthy, who is starting to look at attacking the CIA. And in fact, James Angleton, who not long thereafter becomes head of counterintelligence for CIA, actually uses Grombach to mount a, a disinformation campaign against Senator McCarthy to try and discredit him. They get a former uh, State Department diplomat, uh, who's now out, uh, who had worked for Grombach back uh, in, in Hungary, actually, right after World War II. And they have him, and he's become disgruntled with Grombach, um, have him make contact with Grombach again, have lunch with him occasionally, and sort of pretend like he, he wants to get back in the game, right? And maybe, you know, Grombach, you could hire me kind of thing. And to sweeten that, to sort of induce Grombach to hire him back again, passes bits of fake intelligence uh, that they think uh, McCarthy would find very sexy. And so the notion is that Grombach will tell McCarthy, McCarthy will go public with these, and then the CIA can reveal them as being, you know, ridiculous frauds and discredit him. Uh, that never actually comes to fruition. I mean, those meetings happen. M McCarthy apparently never takes the bait, or the information is never given to him. It's, it's not quite clear. And in 1955, uh, the CIA finally tells him, you know, just go away. Uh, and um, and uh, and that's the end of his operation. He spends the next, oh, let's see, 15 years or so, actually almost 20 years, um, running his private company still, but now as a private investigative agency sort of doing uh, industrial security kinds of things, background investigations on on uh, on, uh, uh, on people working for private companies and, and that sort of thing. And um, then is almost completely forgotten. He had... Um, he had destroyed most of his records, World War II era records, uh, when he left the War Department. And most of the records of his organization post-World War II he took with him, and they were lost. And they only showed up in 2001 um, when an organization called the American Security Council, which is headquartered here in Washington, D.C., acquired a building down in, I believe, the Culpeper, Virginia area. And inside this building they found uh, a couple of safes. And they pried open the safes, and a bunch of documents saying things like top secret on them spilled out. And um, somebody who worked for that uh, organization uh, knew, had a friend who worked at the FBI, called him up, said, I found this stuff, don't know what it is, but not sure we should have it. FBI took it away. They looked at it, said it you know, looks, looks like CIA stuff to us, shipped it over to the CIA. And um, it turned out to be Grumbach's lost, long lost archives. About uh, nine years later, they finally showed up at the U.S. National Archives, and you can go there and work with them, and I have done that. Uh, and we have uh, we've rescued Grombach from, uh, from, from the historical obscurity to which he purposely tried to you know, commit himself because he thought that if you're going to do espionage, you need to go deep, deep, deep undercover. That's why it was a private company all along. So in terms of his actual contributions to the U.S. intelligence, I think they're probably fairly minimal. But he was just such an outrageous character um, and, uh, you know, such a flamboyant guy and really spent his intelligence career trying to swim against the stream and was ultimately, of course, completely smushed. So uh, he's my favorite. I have to say, I, I find this story deeply disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have no sympathy for Grombach. I find him fascinating, but he was clearly a really unpleasant guy, and I think he was on the wrong track. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> well, when, when you look at modern-day intelligence and how privatized it's become and how much... Uh, American government, whether it's military or intelligence or diplomacy, depends on private corporations and organizations, whether it's Blackwater or all the 
Crystal City and Roslyn area corporations, this is kind of like the nascent form of that, the embryonic form of the first real outsourcing of intelligence. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was wondering if, you know, Blackwater or something in their, in their history, you know, like traces their... their <laughs> Well, they probably won't, don't want to be in any way connected to Mr. Glenn. I was thinking that this does sound like the beginnings of, you know, contracting out intelligence. Yeah. yeah I, well, I think that's why I find it so disturbing. So it's an interesting question. And, uh, you know, I don't know what I don't know. I can't immediately point to more recent cases of espionage as such, literally running agents being done on contract. Now, there may be some that I don't know. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but uh, certainly the contractors are, you know, uh, a big deal these days in terms of, you know, supporting operations and helping analysts and providing all sorts of services. But at least the mainstream, if not exclusive U.S. practice these days, is the actual act of recruiting someone to sell their secrets and then of running them is something that's done by the U.S. government. Um, and he's very much an exception in that regard. For me, it's almost, it's, um, and I would agree with Alexis, it's almost a cautionary tale mm -hmm. yes. of intelligence. And I, like you, I looked at the, at least at the, uh, the documents in the National Archives, the Grombach files for World War II, and uh, I would even actually go a step further than you said. There's absolutely nothing in there that is in any way relevant uh, to the conduct <laughs> of World War II. Uh, the no, files, the yeah, files he has, the nice files, choice, Mark. Nice the choice. files on Nazi, well, but it's still, you know, and I'm coming to that, the files on Nazi Germany are, are you know, you kind of wonder why, you know, that, that kind of stuff can be picked up by newspaper, newspapers. What is even more important when you look at, at that point, he was part of the War Department, um, what impact did he have on the Army intelligence machinery, if you like? I think there are no, no traces of it. So, here you have a guy who ran a fairly large organization. And I think um, uh, that is really the cautionary tale here. So here's someone, yes, it was war, so bureaucracy was expanding. Nevertheless, he is able to, uh, to, to build up this, this huge organization, flies completely under the radar. I mean, all of this is very expensive, uh, of course. Uh, he uses that, um, to my, in my opinion, you know, mostly to denigrate uh, the OSS and then perhaps later the, the CIA. Um, um, but he can do he can do this for years and years and years, and I think this is sort of the the cautionary tale. I mean, of course, intelligence has to be it, it can't be completely open, otherwise it wouldn't be intelligence. But here you see the misuse and the abuse, um, and someone like Grumbach clearly um, you know abuses it to a hilt. He produces nothing. Uh, he burns up a lot of resources, and and uh, you know I think in the end you know being involved with McCarthy becomes somewhat damaging, um, and you know, tells you how important, you know, responsible also intelligence supervision is. Um, because someone like Grombach should have never gotten away uh, with the stuff that he got away with. And uh, um, so it's a little bit different from contracting. I think, I don't know who actually in the end paid him. I think he always uh, got his money from the, from the American government, even though he tried to stay out of bureaucratic boxes. Um, but uh, that he could do this for so many years, to me, is the most fascinating aspect of the story. No, I think that's true. Um, in, in terms of who paid him, yeah, it was initially the War Department and the State Department and the CIA. But for at least during the World War II period and for some years afterwards, and I don't know how long, uh, the organization was also funded by N.V. Phillips, which was the Dutch uh, originally uh, light bulb company, now uh, electronics company. You may own a Phillips television, for instance. Um, and he was, he, they had actually been one of his sort of early allies during World War II because N.V. Phillips 
uh, subsidiaries remained operating in occupied Europe, and they used their network. Uh, but yeah, so in part, the American intelligence budget was a check written by uh, N.V. Phillips for quite a number of years, which is pretty odd as well. Can you imagine, I don't know, Ericsson or something funding CIA operations these days? It's just like, you know, can't get there from here in terms of the way we do things now. Thank you, Mark. All right. And finally, we're going to talk about my guy who is an army man. Uh, when I emailed everybody, Thomas came back, army man. Uh, it's Boris Pash, uh, a name some people might be familiar with. He is in the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame, but he's not a name that pops up all too often. Uh, he wasn't born Boris Pash. He was actually born Boris Pashkovsky, uh, son of a Russian Orthodox priest, uh, born in the United States, uh, but traveled back as a teenager to Russia uh, to be part of the White Navy fighting against uh, the Bolsheviks in the Russian Civil War uh, when that didn't go particularly well for the Whites. Uh, he moved back to the United States, uh, got a degree in PE, uh, and was a physical, education. physical education, and was a teacher during the interwar period, uh, and uh, but also an army reservist. And, and he and he was called up in 1940 into military intelligence, and this is when uh, his career kind of begins. Uh, and I, I kind of look at Pash as almost a Forrest Gump of intelligence, not because of the the mental capabilities, just because he found his way into everything. Exactly. It, you know, it's just kind of, yeah, they're exactly. That, the, the kind of person who was always around when something interesting was going on. The first thing he did, uh, he worked in counterintelligence for, for the Army, clearing scientists in California to work on the Manhattan Project. Uh, he was really kind of the final word to clear Robert Oppenheimer to be the chief of the Manhattan Project scientific group. Uh, he had some reservations about Oppenheimer, and incidentally, later on during Oppenheimer's security clearance hearings in the 1950s, he testified about those reservations, and that was a big role in getting Oppenheimer's clearance revoked. But at the time, he said, look, this guy's a lefty. He's got a lot of communist friends, but there's no direct evidence that he's a security threat. So Oppenheimer was cleared, and it was a lot to do with Boris Pash. He's most well-known for being tasked by Leslie Groves to run a mission called Alsace, and this was a mission, uh, a combined mission between American intelligence and scientists to go hunt down uh, whatever the Germans were doing when it came to the atomic bomb, essentially follow right behind the Allied forces as they moved into Italy, France, and Germany, sometimes actually going behind enemy lines to discover the secrets of the German atomic bomb program, to capture scientists, to capture facilities, any kind of documents to find out how far along the Germans were. And so there are fun anecdotes from each of these, these Alsace missions. The first in Italy, uh, if you know anything about the, uh, the Allied invasion of Italy, it started out great, went through Sicily well, got into Italy, and then got bogged down. Uh, and actually, Rome doesn't fall until the same day as D-Day, all the way uh, in June of 1944, even though the invasion of Italy begins a year earlier. So while they're waiting for Rome to fall, because Rome is where all the top scientists are, all the people who used to work with Enrico Fermi, who are now still uh, in Rome working uh, for the Mussolini and for the Italian fascists. Uh, there's not very much that Alsace can do, but Rome finally falls, and Pash goes in to try to uh, interview these Italian scientists to see how much they know about the German program, and goes to the hotel where all the Americans are staying, and runs into uh, a guy who's in a captain's uniform. Now, at this point, Boris Pash is a colonel sitting with his feet up, reading a newspaper. And around him, he had several other newspapers stacked up. And Pash asked him, you know, where, where are the Italian scientists? And the, the captain kind of looked at him and said, you know, they're over there. And Pash got a little annoyed. He says, Captain, 
I'm a colonel. You know, and the captain's got his feet up, and he's reading the newspapers. And so he got mad at this captain and kind of read him the riot act a little bit, and the captain kind of blew him off, went back to his newspapers. And actually in Pash's memoirs, which we'll talk about at the end, he doesn't even name this guy by name. He says, this surly captain who I thought might be in the OSS blew me off and had no respect whatsoever for military bearing. Turned out it was Mo Berg, uh, OSS uh, agent, uh, who was there actually to help Boris Pash. And when Pash finally figured out what was going on, he realized that Mo Berg had been there for a couple days and had already interviewed all the Italian scientists and handed over a big file, a dossier to Pash, saying they don't know anything. And it turned out that Berg, of course, spoke Italian as one of his 12-plus languages he spoke. And Berg had learned quantum mechanics on the way over. As one does. As one does, uh, as certainly as one Mo Berg does. And so he was there uh, to interview these scientists and, and hand that over to Pash. So that was really, they didn't get a whole lot of Italy. Uh, but then when they moved into France, Alsace moved to its next stage. And this is where you really kind of start to admire Pash a little bit, because he had panache. He had kind of gumption that went beyond what others did. Uh, he needed, when France was being invaded and when Paris was about to fall, he wanted to try to get himself into Paris as soon as possible because there was a scientist in Paris um, who was the husband of the daughter of Marie Curie. So uh, Irene Juliet Curie, uh, Frederick Juliet Curie was an amazingly accomplished scientist on his own. He was a nuclear physicist, and we wanted to get to him before anybody else did because Juliet Curie was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, and we wanted to make sure this information that he was working on did not get to the Nazis. The problem was... Pash did not have an army behind him. He was basically with a couple scientists and some counterintelligence guys in a jeep. And, of course, Eisenhower had promised first dibs to Paris to the French army. Well, Pash got tired of waiting, and so he took his jeep and decided to drive into Paris without waiting for the French army. And he got stopped at a checkpoint by members of General Leclerc's forces. And they said, you can't go in to Paris because it's been promised to us. And Pash, thinking on his feet, said, look, I'm not trying to mess with the agreement, but there was an American unit that got lost, didn't know what they were doing, and now on their way into Paris right now. And so I'm trying to rush ahead to stop them from doing so. So the French colonel's like, oh, go ahead, go ahead. According to urban legend, the, according to Pash, the French colonel went and got on the radio to General Leclerc and said, the Americans have broken the agreement. They're gone their way to Paris. And this got Leclerc to get up and say, invade, invade, go, go, go. I don't believe a word of that, but it's a fun story. We do know for a fact is the first four vehicles into Paris were three French tanks and an American jeep carrying Boris Pash, another counterintelligence guy, and two enlisted men as they raced and dodged sniper fire to go capture Juliet Curie, which they do. And it turns out he doesn't know anything either. Finally, they work their way into Germany, and this is where the real meat of the Alsace mission is. This is where they go and arrest and capture all the top German scientists. And their number one goal is to capture Werner Heisenberg, who is the head of the German atomic bomb program. And Pash finally catches up to him. And actually, they find Heisenberg about three or four days before the end of the war, before the end of the European war, in early May of 1945, in a place called Erfeld, Germany. And Thomas, I might be pronouncing that wrong, but that's... <laughs> and, and the funny story there is they, they capture Heisenberg, and they get to where Heisenberg's living. And Heisenberg's sitting there with a suitcase already packed, ready to leave. He knows that they're coming. He's ready to surrender to the Americans as opposed to waiting for the Soviets to show up. So as they're getting Heisenberg ready to go, there's a bang on the door. And the door opens and a German two-star general walks in. 
and says, I'm General So-and-so, I'm the commander of an SS Panzer Division, we're up in the mountains, and we want to surrender to your general. Now, Pash doesn't have a general. Pash is there with 13 guys, and an entire German division is trying to surrender to him. So Pash thinks, oh crap, this is a real problem. If this guy shows up with his division, they're just going to kill everybody. So Pash, thinking on his feet, says, well, the general's asleep right now. He's taking a nap. So come back in the morning, and we'll do a full surrender. Because you don't want to surrender to me. I'm just a colonel, right? You want to actually surrender to the general. And so the general agrees and leaves. And Pash like, whew, we dodged a bullet there. And as they're trying to get Heisenberg ready, another knock on the door. Another general walks in and wants to surrender his entire division to Pash and his 13 guys. Same story, the guy leaves and goes away. They leave that night because there's no way they're waiting around. The next morning, it turns out that both of these divisions had come in and killed a bunch of collaborators and people who had been left behind, who they said had been working with the Americans when they realized there was no American core there inside Urfeld. So Pash escaped. Uh, certain death and got Heisenberg out. And, and, and Pash is important to get out, but getting Heisenberg out is even more important. Because this is arguably, if not the, but certainly one of the top three most important scientists of the 20th century. Nothing electronic or computers would work without Heisenberg's essentially invention of modern quantum mechanics. That's where history ends. And the rest of Pash's story is where urban legend begins. And what makes him so fascinating is what he did after the war. We know he stayed in the Army. He stayed with Army Intelligence, and he was tasked to the CIA. He never joined the CIA, but he was tasked to CIA. And this is where there are all sorts of urban legends and rumors about Pash. We think he was part of an assassination team called PB7. Now, this didn't stand for Pash Boris or anything. This stand for Provisional Branch, part of Army Intelligence. And it was supposedly a unit called Operation Bloodstone. And if that sounds like Bourne, it's exactly like Bourne. Bourne Treadstone was based on this idea that recruited Eastern Europeans that had tried to defect to go back into Eastern Europe to bump off Soviet or Eastern European sympathizers. Uh, there is a connection to William Harvey, if you know that name. He's a very famous covert operative who's been considered uh, by many people to be an assassin himself. Uh, and to the point where Pash was called in front of the church committee in 1975 to answer for his potential assassination. And either he bold-faced lied to church committee saying he wasn't involved in assassination or he wasn't. He denied everything. Um, we also know that he had a close friendship slash association with Sidney Gottlieb. And if that name rings a bell, Gottlieb was the head of a program known as MKUltra, which was the CIA's mind control program in investigating the possible uses of drugs like starting with marijuana, but eventually most famously going on to LSD. So was Pash a, an assassin working with LSD to try to Manchurian candidate other people? We don't know. It's urban legend. And then finally, Pash is being bandied about. If you, if you uh, Google Boris Pash and JFK, you will get reams of wonderful conspiracy theories about the person leaving uh, the hospital when Lyndon Johnson has just been sworn in as president, some unknown character leaving with the Johnson entourage that looks a whole lot like Boris Pash. And so people have connected him to the JFK assassination, including E. Howard Hunt, who in a New York Times article in 1975 wrote that Boris Pash was an assassin for the government. Um, so one day I'd love for all this stuff to be declassified, because this, again, is a guy who's everywhere. I think the truth is somewhere in between. Uh, I, I think he certainly was involved in wet work inside Eastern Bloc during the 1940s. 
the likelihood that he was knee deep in MK Ultra is less feasible, and certainly the JFK stuff is borderline bonkers. Um, but altogether, it makes for a very interesting person, and he has been, for what he did, uh, inaugurated or, or, or br uh, brought into the U.S. Military Intelligence Hall of Fame. Uh, and for he's, his also for his also work primarily, um, uh, but also for his CI stuff that he did during the war. So that's Pash. He's yeah, a quite a character. Yeah, he died in the 1980s. So he lived a long time. Um, he was somebody that kept a very quiet life, uh, had a lot of very close friendships um, with people he'd worked with through All Sauce. Actually, a lot of what we know about him comes from people who worked with him, a lot of these scientists that worked along with the All Sauce mission. Uh, Pash, although he doesn't talk about Berg ever in his memoir, uh, kept trying to find Berg. His All Sauce mission had these five and 10-year anniversaries throughout. And it was always Pash trying to hunt down Berg later on. And that's how we know Berg was wandering off in Malaysia or Thailand somewhere, you know, like Kane and Kung Fu wandering in the earth. Because letters came back from Berg's brother saying, I don't know where he is. We haven't seen him in years. Uh, so yeah, he lived a pretty long life. Uh, wrote a memoir, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, again, you can't believe every word of it. But it is backed up by other memoirs that were written. Uh, this is a guy actually in his memoir, to give you an idea, I, I see him as a, a Jimmy Cagney type no-nonsense. He actually uses the word gobbledygook in his memoir, talking about his, his impression of Leslie Groves. He doesn't put up with any of that gobbledygook that you see other places in bureaucracy. So I kind of see him as the, this kind of no-nonsense hard charger. Doesn't So that's why the MK Ultra assassination stuff has a little bit of legitimacy to me, because he seems like the guy saying, if we can't get this done through normal means, let's just take the dude out. I'm amused by the JFK conspiracy theories there. JFK is a, is a, is a topic which will eat everything. Um, and in fact, he ate Grombach as well. So I published an article in 2004, which was basically the first thing that talked about Grombach that had been published by name in any depth. Um, and I've continued working on him for quite a long time. Um, uh, but I've been amused to see that my 2004 article about Grombach has been picked up by the JFK conspiracy people theory, th conspiracy people theorists. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks, I think. Uh, you know, saying things like, well, isn't it possible that Grumbach knew this guy who we, we think may have been involved with the assassination? Yeah, Grumbach's part of this somehow. And like, you know, I, I don't mean to blow my own horn, but I'm the living expert in the world on Grumbach. They can't <laughs> get there from here to JFK, but if you read the internet, he's part of this. So. Well, the Pash conspiracy <laughs> is like 20 levels, right? He knew this guy who knew this guy who knew yeah, this guy who sort of maybe we think... And one of the things about Pash is he was in a unit... Can we just say as historians, we don't approve of that kind of we methodology? We do not approve of that kind of methodology because there's so many leaps and bounds. But one of the things is that he was part of a unit in the Army, and again, when he was tasked to CIA, that would have tracked Lee Harvey Oswald's trip to the Soviet Union and then to Cuba and all these other places. So he would have known what Oswald was doing, and that's how they kind of bring him in. So I, I just brought it up because it's kind of ridiculous and fun. Uh, but it is kind of food for thought if you want to really get sucked into a couple hours of wanting to bang your head against the table, but reading these online forums about JFK and Boris Pash. If, if you look what he really did, um, you know, it's pretty amazing from what's documented if you look at the ELSA's mission, because here you can really see um, intelligence did make a huge difference. I mean, of course, it was a unique opportunity at the end of the uh, Second World War. Um, so Alsace was, goes into into Europe and Germany, and uh, I think they also were um, 
trying to collect biological chemical uh, right. uh, stuff. And then, of course, Alsace was, was part of a much bigger movement. Uh, there were the tea forces, uh, where Ian Fleming, by the way, was involved. Um, and, and they collected um, tons and tons of documents, recruited science, uh, scientists, and I think there is unanimous agreement that was a windfall, a windfall for American science. It was, of course, also somewhat problematic because some of the people who were recruited weren't exactly, right. didn't have exactly pristine backgrounds like Werner von Braun, uh, who at the very least knew that his, his rocket-based work um, in Nazi Germany was, was uh, supported by slave labor, and there are other characters who were more problematic. But I think there can be no doubt that, that the work he did and others did was very, very consequential. One of the, one of the interesting uh, about Alsace and about the uh, talking about the different scientific missions was that yeah Alsace went beyond nuclear but not because they wanted to because they felt it was necessary to, for their cover story so they brought scientists from the Navy and from from NACA which is the predecessor to NASA to look at aerospace stuff and naval stuff in order to make it not look like they were just going after nuclear stuff and the Alsace name itself is a wonderful story if you know the background behind that. It was picked by some Pentagon code maker coming up with these names, and it was actually not one randomly generated. Actually, Alsace means groves in Greek, like a grove of trees. And so when Leslie Groves found it was an homage to Leslie Groves, when Groves found out about this, he, he went berserk. He said, this is supposed to be the most top secret mission of the war, and you named it after me? But by that time, changing the name would have brought even more attention to it. So he said, fine, maybe nobody will look it up and figure out what it is. So what we want to do now before we leave is we want to give the listeners a chance to learn more about these spies if they want to. So Alexis, where can someone go to find more about Melita Norwood? Yeah, unfortunately, the, the only sort of biography uh, of her, and it's not really even a biography of her, but it, the book devoted to her is, is not that hard, easy to find, actually. It's by a man named David Burke called The Spy Who Came In From The Co-op, Melita Norwood and the Ending of Cold War Espionage. Um, I mean, you can find it online, but it's sort of $35 or something like that. So maybe look in your public, public library or something like that. Um, so that's really the only book devoted to her. And then, there, of course, there is the um, Mitrokin Archive, which outed her, I guess. That's by Chris Andrew and Vasily Mitrokin. Um, and uh, there's not that much else. I, I, I would maybe you can look online and find the, what's called the Mitrokin Inquiry Report that was put out by this parliamentary Intelligence and Security Committee and has um, a couple of sections that are devoted just to Melita Norwood herself. And then perhaps the most interesting thing is actually a, a recent novel um, that was apparently based off of her life and sort of similarly has a, a sort of woman a main character in it who sort of goes through the same things that Melita did. And it's called Red Joan by Jenny Rooney. And that was published just a couple of years ago. Well, and we talked about this when you brought up Melita Norwood and what was there. This might be, for any budding PhDs out there, a yeah, pretty her, interesting PhD Her papers are at Stanford University, but again, there's not apparently anything much in them devoted to intelligence. It's more from her family and her life, but it might be... <laughs> exactly. might be worth looking into, though. All right. Thomas, where can we go to find out more about Blake? Yeah, well, he was much better known or has been written about, I think, much more than, than Melita Norwood. I think their biography came out a few years ago. There's um, tons of um, material on the Berlin Tunnel and, you know, how it was discovered. Uh, anything, anybody who talks about um, intelligence um, operations in Berlin uh, will mention George Blake. 
I would actually recommend his, his autobiography, uh, No Other Choice. Again, like any autobiography, it has to be read with some caution, but it really reads very well. It gives you a sense of the man. And uh, again, I think the, the main chronological events are all, they're all there, and uh, that's a great place to start. All right, Mark? So I'll mention three things about Grombach that are readily available. Uh, the first one is something I wrote. Uh, it was published in the CIA's Journal of Studies and Intelligence. It's available online. It came out in 2004, and it was called uh, The Pond, Running Agents for State War in the CIA. Um, another one is a book uh, by a man named Christopher Felix. Um, that's actually a pseudonym for a man named James McCarger, but the book is Christopher Felix, A Short Course in the Secret War. This has gone through multiple editions, and in the early editions, he didn't actually name Grombach by name, but in the prefaces to the later editions, he says good big parts of this are about him. Uh, and um, also, most recently, uh, Douglas Waller's book, Wild Bill Donovan, about the head of the OSS, has Grombach as an important supporting character, and it's just a great book about Donovan, by the way. Well, I'm going to throw three memoirs at you. Um, is there hasn't been a whole lot secondary source-wise written on Pash. A little bit here and there and some of the usual suspects. But to me, if you really want to know about him, it's Pash's book. He wrote himself a memoir in 1980 called The All-Sauce Mission. Uh, this is, again, from the horse's mouth, so you've got to take it with a pound of salt. Uh, a man named Samuel Goodsmith, who was actually the scientific chief on The All-Sauce Mission, wrote a book called All-Sauce. So you get a little bit of different perspective. He's a little more critical of Pash's role uh, in All-Sauce. And then finally, Leslie Groh's book, Now It Can Be Told, which gives you the big picture, right? The big picture of the Manhattan Project, plus what All-Sauce does, plus Groves' interpretation of Pash. Now, sometime soon there may be another book uh, that comes out that has Pash as a central character in it, but we don't know when that's going to be. I'll get back to you on that one. Is there anything on his... Um on his adventures, let's say, after all sauce. So uh, there's a little bit here and, and there. It, operations and yeah, I mean, there's there are a couple books here and there. I, I don't want to recommend them because they're so... <laughs> not that they're badly written, it's that they're so circumstantial. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I'm not sure they're based on a whole lot that we want to kind of say about that today. Uh, but I would I really focus in on... You get, a, you get to really know Boris Pash as a person... Uh, by looking at this mission, because it, it was extraordinary by itself, but his personality really shines through. All right, so Alexis Albion, Thomas Bogart, Mark Stout, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here at the International Spy Museum. Welcome back, and uh, hope we could do this again. It was fun. Thanks, Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast, available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. 
That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.